Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this podcast. Well, the World Series is finally over. We'll recap a little bit about what happened and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 17 of The Bridge. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, everyone. It is good to be back behind the hallowed microphones of the Queen City here in beautiful sunny Pennsylvania. I say sunny because today it was over 70 degrees even though it is November. I apologize for the delays in pumping out these well-listened-to podcasts. I'm sure you all have been on the edge of your seats in anticipation of my return, which is now. I hope you're as excited as I am to talk sports and whatever we may have missed from the last time we spoke. Now, as I mentioned in the lead-in, the World Series is over. In fact, tonight would have been Game 7 if that should have occurred. But unfortunately for New York Mets fans, that was not the case. The Kansas City Royals win in five games, winning their first World Series championship since 1985. Unfortunately, I don't have the rights to the Bowling for Soup song, 1985, or else I would play it to give you a little bit of an example of some of the fun things that happened in the year 1985 for some of my younger listeners. Speaking of the 80s, I did celebrate my birthday last week. I am now the ripe age of 26, but I did inform the student athletes that I do work with that are in high school that they still cannot call me Mr. We're not at that stage yet, kids. Not yet. Now, I do have an incredibly interesting interview coming up for you guys shortly, and I don't want to blab too long on my end because the interview itself did run a little bit long, but it definitely is worth a listen. So there won't be too much of me aside from asking a couple questions and giving some of my input as well. I'll be talking with Jason Kaidel, who's a sports writer for WFAN.com, CBS.com, CBSLocal.com, CBSSports.com. You get the idea. The man writes, and he writes incredibly well, and he took some time out of his busy schedule to chat with me a little bit about baseball, and that's much appreciated. So I won't bore you too much with the details of the World Series since we are a couple days removed from that. It was just a little bit strange in how quickly the series ended based on how it could have went down. We know, of course, the Mets entered into this World Series with some of the best starting pitching in the game of baseball, probably the best starting pitching rotation we've seen this season at least with the three pitchers in Jacob deGrom, Noah Syndergaard, and the Dark Knight, Mr. Matt Harvey. 
Now the Mets did feature, of course, Steven Matz, who was a left-hander in his rookie season this year, and he did pitch very well. We just didn't see much of him. He didn't even end up making 10 starts once the World Series was said and done, so he's going to be coming back next year, as well as Zach Wheeler, who missed all of this season with Tommy John surgery. So the Mets are still going to be dominant as far as pitching is concerned next year in 2016. Now, the unfortunate thing for the Mets is that there's been times this season where they've struggled in other areas of the game, highlighting the fact that they don't really have a great defense in the infield and their bullpen isn't great aside from Familia coming in in the closer role. And unfortunately for them, when the bright lights of the Fall Classic were on, those types of struggles really reared their ugly head in the worst way possible in several of the games that were played. Familia ended up blowing three saves in the World Series, which is the first time that's ever been done. And granted, he wasn't exactly helped along the way. In Game 1, he did give up that solo home run to Alex Gordon in the ninth inning. That was definitely his fault. For whatever reason, he decided to quick pitch in the ninth inning of the World Series. Didn't work out that well. Left a sinker up, and Alex Gordon demolished it. But there were other instances where the defense didn't necessarily come through. He might have come in at not the most ideal situations, trying to get six outs, coming in the eighth. It wasn't really the best resume. So those three blown saves don't look great, but it's not as bad as it may seem in the box score. But aside from that, there just wasn't anyone to really bring in to stop any fires. The Mets ended up getting away with bringing in some starting pitchers like John Neese or the fan favorite and love of my life, Bartolo Colon. They did okay coming out of the bullpen, but you still need a 7th or 8th inning guy to really help with that bridge to Familia. And Tyler Clippard, if you can believe it or not, is not that answer. And he proved just as much in the World Series. The defense as well just wasn't there in the infield and even in the outfield. Ioannis Cespedes would make a great DH. He's not necessarily a great outfielder, though he does have an incredibly strong arm. Unfortunately, he did have that game one blunder, allowing that inside the park home run, which probably should have been an error instead of an inside the park home run. But thank you, home Kansas City scorekeepers for that one. Curtis Granderson isn't bad. He just doesn't have a great arm either. You can't really put too many other people out there. If you put Juan Lagares in the outfield, he doesn't really hit as well. There's pros and cons to each guy, but you can't just sit Cespedes because you don't want him in the outfield because you need his bat. In the infield, you have David Wright, who was battling back injuries. Wilmer Flores was forced to play shortstop because of the injury to Tejada earlier in the playoffs. Daniel Murphy isn't a great second baseman defensively, though they did definitely enjoy his bat throughout the playoffs until the World Series. And Lucas Duda is that really tall, great hitter that you would usually put at first base in Little League because there's really nowhere else to put him. Like, you can't put him in right field and hope nobody hits him the ball, but you still need his bat, and there's no DH in Little League, so you just throw him at first and hope he catches stuff. That's pretty much what Lucas Duda is with the Mets. And his most egregious error was in the final game when Eric Hosmer decided that he was going to test his arm and scored on a ground ball to third after David Wright threw to first. Lucas Duda panicked and threw it to the backstop. If he throws the ball anywhere close to the glove side of Darno, Hosmer is out and he's a goat because the media would rip him after the game wondering why he was taking off for home with two outs in the top of the ninth and his team down a run. 
But it ended up working out, and that was pretty much the way the whole World Series worked out for the Royals. And quickly behind the plate, Darno couldn't throw me out if I was stealing second base. But I will say I did have pretty great base running knowledge. Not so much the speed, but I could read when I should or should not go. So I might be able to get a good jump on a pitcher and it wouldn't be necessarily Darno's fault. But I think he was 11 for 11, as in 11 people stole on him and he threw out zero. So that's not really the number that you want your young starting catcher to have. The Mets already had to deal with Mike Piazza being a fantastic hitter, maybe not necessarily the greatest defensive catcher, but that was overruled with what he was able to do at the plate. Darno just not very good defensively. He does not have the arm, and that's going to be a problem in the future, it appears. So the Mets ended up lucking out in a way that these things really didn't matter early in the playoffs. The hitting was there. The hitting came through in a timely fashion. It just seemed in the World Series when they needed a big hit, they just kind of waited for that home run rather than trying a rally or putting anything together, and the home run almost always did not come. The Royals played their typical band of baseball, just get the bat on the ball, see what happens, put it in play. We heard the announcers say that hundreds of thousands, it appeared, times where, oh, these scrappy Royals, these resilient Royals, all they do is put the ball in play. That's baseball, people. Don't strike out. Granted, when DeGrom pitched, they swung and missed at a total of three pitches, which is absolutely bananas three pitches in a baseball game were the only three pitches that they swung and missed at that is crazy but at the same token if you have a good fielding team you could put the ball in play all you want the fielders are going to make plays and you're going to go home empty-handed fortunately they did have a lot of clutch hitting a lot of doubles a couple home runs they just did everything right and it just goes to show you how impressive Madison Bumgarner's performance was last year for him to beat them in Game 1, Game 5, and Game 7 pretty much by himself. But the Royals didn't take kindly to that. This was their goal, to get back to the World Series and to finally win the World Series, and it just seemed like they had all the momentum on their side, winning the first two games at home, dropping Game 3 to Noah Syndergaard, which you can kind of see coming. Being able to win game four and then coming from behind to win game five, they pretty much came from behind in every single game of the World Series. Whenever they were down, you just knew that in some way they wouldn't be out, and that's just amazing baseball. There's really nothing you can do. They were clearly the better team. Now, there were instances where there were some head scratchers with Mets manager Terry Collins, whether that be his pitching decisions, whether that be his batting decisions. I know one that people spoke about as far as Game 5 was concerned was bringing Matt Harvey back out for the ninth inning of Game 5, even though he was over 100 pitches. Maybe you should bring in Familia. But the thing of that is, Familia was going to come in for his third consecutive game because Collins decided he was going to bring Familia in in Game 3, even though they had a six-run lead. A six-run lead. You don't think you could hold that? I mean, if there's trouble, you need to bring him in, obviously. But up six in the ninth, I think you might be okay giving him that extra day's rest. Because of that, he noted in game four, he didn't want to bring him in for more than a three-out save because he had pitched them the night before. Oh, good. 
So he brings back Harvey after Harvey argues with the pitching coach and then argues with Collins saying, I'm going in, no way, I want the ball, which is great. That's what you want to see from your pitcher, and I gained a lot more respect from him after that debacle a couple months ago where there was a pitch limit and Scott Boris didn't want him to pitch, and he was like, oh, I don't know, I'm going to be late to practice because of traffic, da 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 this showed that he at least is the pitcher that everyone hopes and expects him to be, and I love the fact that he wanted the ball for that ninth inning. The only thing I didn't like was on a 3-2 count to Kane for his first batter, he threw him a slider on that 3-2 pitch and walked him to start the inning. Why not throw him a fastball? See what happens. He hits a home run, he's still got a one-run lead. But it had a lot to do with the adrenaline. The crowd was on their feet. It was a bonkers inning at City Field. But then, of course, Eric Cosmer comes up, hits a double, a run scores, and then the wheels just fall off the cart. Collins is to go to Familia. Familia gives up some hits, and it's over. And then it's not like the Royals are just satisfied tying the game or taking the lead. No, they have to tack on three, four, five more runs just to make the box score look a little bit better and put the team in even more misery than they were already in down one. But I guess whatever Collins did was not egregious enough for the Mets to want to look elsewhere because they're going to sign him for a two-year extension, and I guess we're going to be seeing him around for the next couple of seasons. Do I think the Royals could get back to the World Series next year? Absolutely. If they can add one more, maybe, starting pitcher to go along with who they already have, they did bring in Johnny Cueto at the trade deadline, and he pitched very well in some games during the playoffs. If they can bring in one, maybe even two starting pitchers to go along with that dominant bullpen, they're definitely going to be back, at least in the postseason. As far as the Mets are concerned, it appears like they're just going to mildly go after Cespedes and the same with Daniel Murphy, like basically walk into the room, drop a couple stacks of $100 bills on the table and go, yeah, I think there might be more where that came from. What do you think, Danny boy? And his stock did drop, Murphy's that is, in the World Series because maybe he had two hits, three didn't really do well at all, and the defense blunder that he made didn't help as well. Cespedes was also a no-show at the plate, and again, that defensive play in Game 1 didn't help his cause either. But both those guys are going to go after the money, and there's going to be teams that want to pay it for them. That's just baseball. That's how it goes. Personally, I think if they leave, that's fine. The Mets just need to bring in a couple more bats to help that lineup, preferably ones that could play some defense. That starting pitching is going to be absolutely dominant next year. The only problem is they need to strengthen that seventh or eighth inning guy to get to Familia. Familia was actually going to be that eighth inning guy, but the Mets closer went and took steroids and missed the entire season basically because of that and forced Familia into the closer role, which he was very good at. But if they can bring in somebody that could be the eighth inning guy, like a Dylan Batances type player or even a lefty specialist for those instances, they'll be in good shape. Even if Bartolo Colon at age 43 or 44, whatever he is now, reignites his career as a setup man coming in throwing 89-90 after the starting pitchers are hitting 98. I'd like to see that. 
And maybe that's just because I like seeing Bartolo Colon, but you get where I'm going. They need some help with that. So a great win for the Royals, an excellent day for the franchise. The parade was yesterday, and 800,000 people were there in a city that's populated by 400,000. So that just goes to show you how excited Kansas City Royals fans are for their team. And now, unfortunately, that will be it for baseball. But fortunately, we have an interview coming up with enough baseball to at least get us through this podcast. And maybe you can listen to it throughout the year until Pitchers and Catchers comes in 90 or 100 days, whenever that may be. Now, again, I want you to brace yourselves. This is a pretty long interview, but it is well worth your time. Jason's going to speak a little bit about how he got into the industry to where he is now. And it's a fascinating journey, not only for those who consider maybe being a journalist or getting into the media world, but for anyone really on how you should go about following your dreams and aspirations. We'll also speak a little bit about the state of the industry itself and maybe where the future is headed for journalists and for broadcasters and for anyone really in this field. And then, since we're both Yankees fans, we, of course, couldn't pass up the opportunity to talk about how disappointing the season was and where the Yankees may go from there. And then we talk a little bit about the World Series for games three and four since this interview was done on my birthday the world series was still going on so we're basically right in the crux of when the royals were up two games to none and what the mets needed to do to move forward and maybe string a couple together but again it was a great interview it was a pleasure for me to have the opportunity to chat a little bit about life and about baseball and about sports in general so i hope you guys will enjoy it just as much as i did All right, we are talking with Jason Keidel. He's a sports writer for WFAN.com, CBSLocalSports.com, CBSSports.com. The list goes on and on, sir. How are you tonight? I'm outstanding. How are you? I am doing very well. It is my birthday, as we just discussed before we made this official and live, so I'm doing well, and this is going to be great icing on the cake, if you will, no pun intended, So the first thing I just wanted to discuss with you and to kind of give the listeners a little bit more background about what you do is how you really got started with becoming a sports writer and how you were able to get to where you are today. Well, it's a rather circuitous route. Um, I guess a lot of sports writers, particularly ones in the major media market like New York, tend to go to Northwestern or Syracuse and work as a production assistant for some media company and then just climb the ladder. I didn't take that route at all. I actually enlisted in the service after high school. I worked in corporate America for about 10 years, and then um, I literally had an epiphany. I, I, I just turned 30, and I was sitting in a cubicle working for American Express, and I said to myself, I don't want to do this anymore. And I said, I just, uh, probably around the time of Y2K, all these anthologies were coming out. And the one that I read was the best American sports writing of the 20th century. It had all the greats, Red Smith, Grantland Rice, W.C. Hines, John Updike, I mean, Jimmy Cannon, all the legends. Uh, I read that book, and I've been reading sports pages since I was about six years old. The New York Times. Daily News, New York Post, and I I just was always a sports junkie. I was born and raised in Manhattan, not Kansas, New York City. (laughs) And uh, I said, well, I can try to fuse my two passions. Uh, Well, my passion to that point was sports, 
And I didn't know much about writing other than I enjoyed reading. I started taking writing classes at NYU, uh, New York University, at night, working nine to five and then taking writing classes. And then, like uh, most people, I had to take whatever jobs I could writing for free. The most I could get, this was around the dawn of the Internet, at least the explosion of the Internet. I started writing about boxing. Boxing was something I was very familiar with, and it was just, it was a not a niche sport. It was still popular in the late 90s, right. but there weren't as many specialists as there were. Anybody could write about football or baseball or basketball, but not that many people were writing about boxing. So I had been following the sport since the late 70s when I was a little kid. My dad used to take me to the garden, and I started writing for several boxing websites, and I used to take trains to Atlantic City, to Foxwoods, to Albany. Occasionally, I'd cover a big fight at the Garden. I once in a while went to Vegas, but that was rare because websites didn't pay anyone to travel, and they didn't even generally pay people to write for them because so many people were trying to write, and they could sort of milk the talent pool without having to expend any funds. Right. So I started doing that for a while, and then I started getting some name recognition. And then I started writing for a very popular fighter in the 90s named Felix Trinidad, who's a Puerto Rican fighter, very popular in New York because there's a very dense Puerto Rican population in New York City. And I started writing for his personal website, and that got a few eyes on my work. And then I started writing for a very popular, I think it's still a very well-known site called Max Boxing. And I connected with a guy, anybody who's ever successful in this field, John, or any field, you know, talent matters, but persistence matters even more. And also somebody has to help you along the way. Sort of like a cliche, pay it forward kind of thing, you know? Mm -hmm. I hooked up with a gentleman named Thomas Hauser, who Hauser became famous for writing the definitive Muhammad Ali biography. Sold millions of copies. It was just a hit from the beginning, and it's a wonderful book. And he sort of took me under his wing. And I was with him for a few months, just learning the ropes, how to cover press conferences, how to interview, things like that. And he was very helpful to me. And then I sort of went out on my own. It took years. I, you know, I always called myself a, a 10-year overnight success story. <laughs> I just, no matter, no matter what was happening, no matter how many rejections, and to become successful, especially in writing, and especially sports writing, you're going to hear no a lot. So I got a lot of rejections, a lot of doors closed on me. And I took some time off from writing. I just said, well, maybe it's not meant to be. So I went back into corporate America. I actually got a commercial driver's license and started driving 18 wheelers across country. Wow. And I actually said it was a very, actually a very good living, but I was sleeping in a truck four nights a week. And right. I said, I don't want to do this the rest of my life. I was living with the gal I was with at the time, and I said, I don't want to do this anymore. She said, well, why don't you give the sports writing thing another shot? And I did. This was around the time that, I don't know why, there's no parallel, but it was around the time Michael Jackson died. I'm thinking that's 2008, 2009, something right. like that. I started a blog, a personal blog, which had maybe five followers. I mean, nobody was reading it. But I reached out to a newspaper called AM New York, and it's a, a very popular paper. It's, it's a red cube on every street corner almost in Manhattan next to the Village Voice. It was a free daily paper, right. but it had a circulation of about 400,000 daily. So it was substantial, and it was a, a subsidiary of Newsday, which is a, you know, a monolithic newspaper in New York. Everybody who lives here knows Newsday. I cold called them. I reached out to a woman. 
I reached out to her, and she said that she liked my stuff, but she it wasn't her decision to make. She asked me to contact the sports editor, and his name was Pete, uh, Pete Catapano. And I basically groveled for about a half an hour because he asked me what was my experience. And I, I was basically saying, well, 10 years ago, I was writing about Mike Tyson and this and that and the other. And he's like, well, you know, that's not much of a resume. And I said, you're absolutely right. I said, but if you give me a shot, I promise you, no one's going to try harder. Nobody's going to write better, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So he gave me a shot. My first piece, I think, was about Phil Sims. I got, I somehow ran an interview with Phil Sims. That went well. Then I did a profile on Greg Schiano. I did a profile on Joe Torre. I, I really was doing some decent stuff. The problem, John, was that they were only giving me one piece a month. And they were paying me, I think, $90 a piece. <laughs> so it's hard to live on $90 Right, a month. especially in the city, yes. Exactly. And fortunately, I was living with my girlfriend at the time, who was in a rent-control apartment, so she was paying most of the bills at the time. So I asked for, this is a true story, because all things work in life. My editor did not like me. I won't say his name. I'll just say his name is Max. Sure. Max did not like me. I don't know if he was threatened by me. I don't know what it was. He did not hire me, so he felt like he couldn't control me. I, there was something from the beginning he just didn't like me. So I went to the editor of the department, Pete, and I asked him for more work, more money, more something. I said, at least if you give me more work, I can by default make more money. I don't need a raise, just give me more work. And he said, Jason, we don't have the funds right now. Our budget is very, very limited. I said, okay, I understand. He said, but you should probably talk to Max because he's offended. And I said, why is he offended? Well, because you went around his back to do this. And I said, I just went to the guy who hired me to ask for a raise. I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. Right. So I went to Max, and I said, Max, look, I apologize. I didn't realize I was somehow going outside the chain of command. I didn't mean to disrespect you. I just went to the guy who hired me to ask for more work. That's all. And he said, I really appreciate the candor and honesty, Jason. You're fired. I was like, okay, great. So I went from getting a raise to getting fired. That was that and was a quick turn. Yes, yes. So now I was supposed to interview, and if, if your listeners know something about movies from the 90s and early 2000s, I was supposed to interview Chaz Palminteri from The Bronx Tale and Usual Suspects. He's had a very nice career. Right. Anyway, super nice guy, super nice guy, and, and an avid sports fan. But I was supposed to do a profile on him for AM New York. And now I no longer had a job at AM New York. So what I did was I called, I looked at WFAN. I'd been listening to WFAN, which is the flagship station for New York sports and the first all-sports station in America, probably in the world. So WFAN is something of a a landmark radio station. So I noticed they just started WFAN.com, and I was reading their stuff, and I said, okay, I can certainly write like these guys do. You know, I try not to be too arrogant. Deep down, I said, well, I'm better than these guys, but you don't want to say that to the person who's running the website. Right. So the man's name was Eric Spitz. He was the program director for the radio station, but he was also doubling as the editor of the website. So he was doing two jobs and only being paid for one. Anyway, so I contacted Eric, and I reached out, and I said, look, I'd really be an honor to write for you guys. I'll do whatever you want. So he read some of my stuff, and he said, Jason, I absolutely love your stuff, but we don't have a budget yet. We have yet to be absorbed. CBS owns WFN. CBS has yet to absorb us as a website, so we don't have any money. So if you don't mind writing for free, 
we'll take you. Now, I'm sure you and everybody else is used to hearing, we can't pay you, but the exposure is enormous line. Right, the exactly. Cro- the cro- there is. Exactly. Now, that works when you're 19 years old. That doesn't work when you're 39, right? right? But it was WFAN. Something told me, do it. So I took the Chaz Palminteri interview, and it turns out he's been listening to WFAN for two decades. It works seamlessly. And then I started, then I wrote a profile. I don't know if you remember, Doc Gooden got arrested in Virginia for driving under the influence with his son in the car. Right, yes. It was, it was a really sad, sad story. And the whole Doc Gooden story is sad, of course. Right. And you don't have to be a New Yorker to appreciate that story. And I just, uh, the next day, I wrote a wonderful piece about that. Wonderful piece. The best piece I'd ever written. It's like, you always wonder how you're going to do in the ninth inning with two runners on and two outs in game seven. You wonder if you're going to choke or if you're going to get a base hit. Well, I actually got it. I hit a grand slam. It was the best thing I had ever written. So they loved me, but they still weren't paying me. I took a couple of those pieces, and I reached out to my personal favorite writer, whose name is L. John Wertheim. He writes for Sports Illustrated. Mm-hmm. And I found him on Facebook, and I said, Mr. Wertheim, you have no idea who I am, and if you ignore me, I totally understand but I've always loved your work, and I'd love the opportunity to write for Sports Illustrated. I showed him the Doc Gooden piece and a couple other things, and he said to me, Jason, this is really good. I can't guarantee you anything, but I will introduce you to my editor. Wonderful. So he introduces me to his editor, a man named B.J. Schechter, and I said, Mr. Schechter, John Wertheim said that I could talk to you. He says, I don't even have to read your stuff. If John Wertheim recommends you, no problem. So he let me pitch six ideas. He took to one of them. I wrote a boxing profile about a guy named Leon Taylor, who was probably the most talented fighter nobody's ever heard of. He was destined to be a Michael Spinks type light heavyweight, but unfortunately the streets gobbled him up, drugs and alcohol and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But he's just a very nice man who just didn't make it because of his demons. Anyway, it was a fascinating story. I wrote a 3,000 word profile for Sports Illustrated. And then from then, it, CBS wound up absorbing WFAN, so they were able to start paying me. And then a man named Adam Bloom, who runs CBS Local Sports, took an interest in me. So then I started writing for WFAN, CBS New York, and CBS Local Sports. So this is all getting very juicy. Right. So now I'm actually now I'm actually paying bills, right? <laughs> so this is nice. Then the Manny Pacquiao Floyd Mayweather fight is announced. And a vice president of CBS Sports contacts me. Wow. And they put me on the payroll for four months to cover that fight. And this was quite an honor, John. I wrote the first boxing piece ever to make the front page of CBSSports.com, which gets 30 million hits a month. Wow. And, yeah, it was called The Last Great Fight. And it took me about... 10 days to two weeks to write that feature. It was maybe the best thing I've ever written. I, I really took care with that, and they loved it. And like I said, it was the first piece ever to make the front page of that website because, you know, boxing is sort of relegated to the back alleys of sports sections now, somewhere between high school wrestling and horse racing, you right. know what I mean? But that fight mattered. That was the last fight that would really resonate. Anyway, so I covered that fight, knocked it out of the park, and uh, ever since then, things have been going very well. I'm technically not an employee of CBS, although I've been with them for almost six years. I'm still technically a freelancer. I have a freelance contract with CBS Local Sports. I have a, a contract with WFAN CBS Radio. I do freelance work for CBSSports.com, so that's the mothership, of course. Over the last three years, I'd say probably my pay has doubled or tripled, 
and I'm certainly not wealthy, but I can actually make a living writing about sports, and that, that's pretty neat. That's the dream for some of us, really, it is. That's the dream, man. I never wanted to get rich off this. Hey, I'm working on novels. I've written novels that have been rejected. If I, if I write one that becomes a big hit, so be it. But if I can write and make a living writing about sports, and maybe sell a book or two. I'm the happiest man on earth. Nobody should ever get into writing to become rich. It's just, there are very few Stephen Kings and J.K. Rowlings and people like that. You know, writing is not what it used to be. It's a very cutthroat endeavor. Fewer and fewer people are literate, unfortunately. Fewer and fewer people read. Fewer and fewer people buy books. Some people don't even know what a book looks like. They read everything on their iPad, right. you know? The newspaper industry is dying, John. You know, they just fired Mike Lukaka, for Christ's sake. I'm sorry, for goodness sake, I didn't mean to curse. Oh, no, that's uh, fine. We're, we're an unedited program. But I, I, know, okay. I, was, I was even going to bring that up to you, because I know that just happened a couple weeks ago, where the New York Daily would just basically threw everybody aside and guys that had jobs for 30, 40 years are now unemployed. And obviously they're going to be looking for a similar paycheck to what they were making, but that's going to be incredibly difficult to find because all newspapers seem to be in the same boat. They're all in the same boat. And the big problem, John, is they haven't figured out a way to monetize the internet. Right. No one one really has yet. Right. Right. No one has yet. And I find that astonishing. I don't know if you're a big fan. I'm a huge fan of, it's become a cult classic now, but I was actually a fan when it came out. That HBO show called The Wire, which is now legendary, but now it, it waited, it took 10 years for it to finish for people to actually get hit to that show on well, HBO. That's what happened with me. I actually watched it, binge watched it last year. I got on the bandwagon with actually a lot of HBO programming, and I was like, right. why did I wait so long to watch this? How good is that show, John? Amazing show. It's absolutely amazing. I recommend it to anyone that's ever been like, oh, I watched a couple, but I couldn't get into it. Oh, no. Please, sit down and watch. No, no, no. I tell anybody who watches one or two, I said, that's not enough. You have to watch a whole season. Please watch a whole season. You have to. Anyway, the reason I bring up The Wire is the creator of that show is David Simon. David Simon worked for the Baltimore Sun. He was a beat reporter. He worked at Crime Beat for 15 years, and they bought him out. Mm-hmm. And then that's what inspired him to write. Well, he'd written Homicide, Life on the Killing Streets, while he was still with the Sun. But then he wrote The Corner, and then he got funding for the HBO miniseries The Corner, which is also wonderful. And then he got the green light for The Wire. So all that happened because the newspaper industry bought him out. And the standard line they used with him, or with everybody, anybody who survived these cuts, was, "We'll just have to do more with less." And and David Simon made a great point. You don't do more with less. You do less with less. This right. idea that we somehow can get more with less. It's ridiculous. The Yankees let Robinson Cano go, and suddenly Chase Headley or whomever is supposed to replace him. Well, we'll just have to do more with less. No, you don't replace Robinson Cano. You don't do it. Now, I understand you don't want to pay $240 million. I get that, but you do not do more with less. When the Mets let Cespedes go, because you know they will, they're not going to be better without him. If they let Daniel Murphy go, they're not going to be better without him. Right. Now, I understand these are business decisions, but the more with less mantra really bothers me. Anyway, that's what's happening in our industry. So I would say, to sort of sum up this narrative, first of all, I hate the term aspiring writer. If you're writing, then you're a writer. Nobody has the right to tell you whether or not you're a writer. You determine that, okay? Second of all, just because somebody doesn't like your work doesn't mean it's no good, okay? A lot of people are paid to evaluate talent, and 90% of them have no fucking clue what they're talking about. You're right. Okay? You have to believe in yourself, number one, Okay. I was in a writing class, first writing class at NYU. The teacher asked the class. There were 20 of us. What's more important, talent or persistence? I was the only one who raised his hand at persistence. Not because talent isn't important. Of course it is. But persistence is what gets people killed. It's the people who quit 
people will give up five minutes before it's going to happen. You can't quit because if you if you go into it thinking I'm only going to give it a year and if it doesn't work, then don't do it. You either have the writing bug or you don't. You either have to cover sports for a living or you don't. Either you're manic about it or you just don't do it. It's one of those fields that is so cutthroat. Everybody's an amateur blogger, especially with the internet now. Everybody thinks they're the next Red Smith, next Grantlin Rice, the next whomever. You just have to keep doing it. Now, of course, you have to determine whether or not you have the talent. If you have no talent, unfortunately, there's not much you can do about it. But the persistence is even more important. You have to stick to it. It took me 15 years to get to the point where I could pay my bills in sports writing. And I wasn't going to quit. I drove trucks. I was a travel agent. I was a FedEx courier. I worked mopping floors. I did whatever it took, John, because that was my goal. And you cannot let pride get in the way. If it means you have to do something on the side, it means you have to become a bartender or a trucker or a cashier or flip burgers, whatever it is you have to do, just keep your eye on the long-term goal. And if you have the ability, you will make it. It just It's, it's going to take a little while. It's just going to take a little while. It just is. And the truth is, in year one, you're not going to be as good as you are at year five. We all like to think we start out as brilliant writers, but I read some of my first few columns. They were terrible. Uh, I think and everybody's are, in that uh, boat. When you read your yeah. old work, it's like, oh, geez. <laughs> uh, I'm like, I, I'm barely literate. I'm like, what right. am I doing? I can't believe I wrote this paragraph. This is hideous. I wish I could delete it. <laughs> See, I have second grade to do this. But the whole point is you're never going to get worse at it. It's like anything else. You're only going to get better at writing. There are only two universal truths in writing. Only two. People give all this advice, and most of it's horseshit. Only two things are essential to writing. You must do two things. You must A, read, and B, write. Those are the only things you have to do. That's right. You read to pick up on, on how to do it, and you write to practice. Now, I throw in the third one, then it's just a personal one for me, and that's find a hero. When I say hero, I mean a literary hero. Whether it's your local beat writer for the local newspaper or a literary titan. I fell in love with John Steinbeck. I love John Steinbeck, and he inspired me to start writing. But it doesn't matter. It could just be anybody, somebody you admire, and you want to be like that person. And then you start writing like that person, then eventually you find your own voice. Having somebody you admire is very healthy, in my opinion. Like Tom Brady grew up idolizing Joe Montana. Joe Namath grew up idolizing John Unitas. There's nothing wrong with that. Eventually they become their own people, so... Persistence, practice, find somebody you want to be like, and eventually it'll happen. I can't say when, but it does happen. You're right. I I hope people are taking notes because you're spitting fire and it's all true. Now, you mentioned you have to find your voice, and I know things are a little different now because, like you said, when you first started, you were doing feature pieces and talking to people and doing interviews, but a lot of your stories now tend to be more of like a columnist base. Yes. Where you're more opinionated and you're able to create your own voice. How is that different than what you were used to doing when you first got your start? And how are you able to kind of keep that up and develop your own voice day to day and week to week? Well, when I started writing, I took it as hardcore reportage. Let's say, for instance, I was interviewing Joe Torrey. I asked him questions that were entirely objective, and I made the story as objective as possible. In other words, I was a Yankee fan who actually adored Joe Torrey and adored those 1990s Yankees. Right, as but did I. it was not clear from the columns. I, did, I made sure that was not clear in the columns. Mm-hmm. I wanted somebody to read that and say, I have no idea if this guy is a Yankee fan or not. That was very important to me. The appearance of neutrality is incredibly important. Okay, And you have to become good at asking questions. So what do you do? 
you listen to somebody like Brian Gumbel, or you listen to somebody like Jim Lampley, or Buster Olney, or Tom Verducci. I, I happen to think Tom Verducci is the best sports baseball writer in America. You hang around people who are in a position that you want to be in, and then you pick up tricks of the trade, so to speak. So that's what I did in the beginning. Then, as I started writing features, I was able to play a little bit with pros, okay? So what I did was, my magazine, my Bible growing up was Sports Illustrated. So I would read John Wartime. I would read Gary Smith. I would read S.L. Price. Just to show you what kind of word geek I am, S.L. Price, the story on Alec Lippler, maybe the best sports story ever written, by the way. Anybody wants to read how it's done, read S.L. Price's Sports Illustrated piece on Alec Lippler, Pennsylvania. Anyway, I've read that probably 20 times because I always pick up something different each time. Right. Every time I read it, I learn something else. Okay, just like a film student might want to watch Schindler's List, and they probably learn something the fifth time they watch it, or Goodfellas, or The Godfather, or that's what that was for me. I'm a student; I'm always learning. So I pick up tricks, and I read, and I read, and I read, and then eventually, what I do is I learn more about sentence structure. I learn more about paragraph length. I learn not to start two sentences with the same word. I learn not to start two paragraphs with the same word. I make sure I mix up quotations. I don't use a quote. I don't use dashes in consecutive paragraphs. All these things that come naturally to you after a while, you have to learn these things. Mm -hmm. Okay? And one thing that people don't realize, John, is we read with our ears as much as with our eyes. So what happens with good writing is it sounds even better than it looks. Because what we're doing when we're reading is we're actually talking to ourselves. We don't realize it, but we're actually speaking the words to ourselves. Now, why is that important? Several reasons. One, good writing is lean and it's confident. So what I did was, when I started writing, I thought big words would really impress people. But what it did was clog up all my work. So what you want is many one- and two-syllable words as possible. Keep it lean, keep it tight. And that's how I started writing my feature pieces. Now, of course, there are certain words that are unique. And if they're five syllables, you have to say apotheosis, then you have to say it. It is what it is. Some words don't replace the five syllables. That's okay as long as the goal is to keep it lean and confident. That's it. And very, very active verbs. I mean, I used to write a list of 100 active verbs. And I say, okay, that verb works, that verb works, that verb works, because the verbs are what engage the reader and what bring action to the piece, right? So that's what I started doing. Eventually, I started finding my own voice. I would read something from John Wertheim, and I'd say, okay, I want to write a piece like that. But eventually, I started using words that I saw, and I started using my vocabulary. I started using my experiences. Because all we are, John, is a product of our experiences. So mm -hmm. we're going to use words that somehow relate to something that happened to us in our life. And that's where the language comes from. The language comes from our soul. It comes from our experiences. It comes from our childhood. It comes from our desires. It comes from our love. It comes from our hatred. It comes from our fear. Writing is a very perilous thing because we're putting our soul onto the page. People wonder why when you bash a writer's work, why they get so offended or so sensitive. Because you're bashing us. Yes, I'm writing about Joe Torrey, but you're not just bashing a Joe Torrey piece. You're bashing me personally. Right. I'm putting my soul into these pieces. And I'm sorry, yes. I still get offended by the occasional troll. I mean, not like I used to. I mean, trust me, I'm numb to 99% of them. But occasionally they get to me. Mm -hmm. But you have to learn to tune that out. So anyway, the long-form stories, I looked at the stories, and I could play with those a little bit, but I, I made sure to stay as objective as possible. Now, I still do that occasionally with CBS Sports or CBS Local Sports when they want me to write a feature piece. Unfortunately, even CBS is suffering financially, so there's not as much room for that as there used to be. All media companies, I think ESPN just laid off 4,000 people. All media companies are struggling right now. So 
when I started with thing, he says, I have trust in your writing. I have trust in you. There's only one mandate. I will never tell you what you write about, but I, there's only one mandate. And he said, bring it strong. I don't care if it sounds stupid. I don't care if anybody agrees with you. Just keep it strong. And that's what I did. I made my opinions bold. I made them strong. I made them unflinching. And a lot of people hated what I had to say, but you know what? They kept coming back. And it doesn't matter if they read you because they love you, John, or if they hate you. As long as they keep reading you, who gives a damn? That's and right. that was my goal. We're in New York, okay? This is a place where tough people roam. This is where tough opinions are expressed. This is where people will tell you to go fly a kite, and they will say it in much stronger terms. Oh, absolutely. So you have to be able to develop a thick skin, and you have to bring it strong, and you have to realize people are going to say some really nasty shit to you. And if you're willing to absorb all that and still keep going, then you can make it. It took me a while. It took me almost a year before. I'll give you a great example, John. I had this guy. I made the mistake of putting my personal email address at the beginning of my at the end of my columns for the first year. And this guy used to send me after every time I wrote about the Yankees, he'd send me an email, and the title of the email was "Worst Article Ever Written." Now he wrote that every time he wrote me. Do you realize how talented I must be to write the worst article ever written every time? So I wrote 70 columns about the Yankees, and each one was worse than the prior one. That's an, that's an incredible gift. Anyway, this guy infuriated me, and I started writing him back, and I'm like, you're an online tough guy. You're really a chump. You don't even use your real name. Does that. And I realized he was winning. All I'm doing is giving this man what he wants. He's never going to do anything with his life. All he does is sit back and judge and criticize other people. Right. He doesn't have the courage to make a name of his own. And what he does is he hijacks electricity from people who are doing something with their lives. And I am feeding that, and I'm letting him win. So eventually I stopped responding to him, and then, I don't know, he wrote me a couple other emails saying, worst article ever written, and then eventually I stopped hearing from him. But that, that's an adjustment. When, when you get a certain amount of notoriety and publicity, people really, you know, the term hating, people really do hate on that. And it's not because you're bad, it's because you're doing something that they want to do, but they don't have the courage to do it. And they resent that. Just like they resent the handsome man, or they resent the beautiful woman, or the guy who's driving a Porsche. They resent that, because they didn't go out and get that. And you're doing what they want to do. So I had to realize, I'm writing for CBS, man. This is something that millions of men would kill for. So I had to put that in perspective and be grateful for my position. Even though I earned it, God, did I earn it. I also had to realize that there are going to be some haters along the way, and they still are. But you just have to develop a thick skin and just focus on the prize, man. And you always have to believe in yourself. If you don't, nobody else will. And that's something that you just have to stick with, man. And it's just so true. If you don't believe in yourself, God knows nobody else will. Because there are going to be times where you're the only one who believes in what you're doing. And how many times do we hear the story? The guy who tried one more time to play in the NFL, and then he winds up with Kurt Warner's bagging groceries. Next thing you know, he's winning Super Bowl. Right. Uh, J.K. Rowling is on welfare, and then now she becomes a billionaire from his Harry Potter stuff. I mean, it does happen. And there are times where you're the only one in the room who believes in what you're doing. When even your friends and your family are like, you know what, I love him, but I hope to God he has a plan B. To hell with plan B. There can be no plan B. If there's a plan B, then you're not going to get everything you've got. Then you're not desperate. If you're not desperate, you're not going to give it your best shot. You're not going to give it. And it doesn't have to be right. It could be anything. No matter if you want to play for the Knicks or you want to be a pro golfer, or you want to be an opera singer or whatever it is. If you have a plan B, if you have a parachute, 
then you're not going to be at your best. That's why the first album, right? That's why the first album, the first book is always so good, right? Pearl Jam came out with 10 and was like, oh my God. And I love Pearl Jam, but they never made another album like that. Why? Because they got rich off of it. It's just in our nature to not do as well once we become successful. So it's very hard to keep that hunger going. That's why it's so hard to repeat as World Series champions, as Super Bowl champions, as heavyweight champions, as whatever. Pick your endeavor. It doesn't matter what industry it is. It's hard to maintain success because we become complacent. Once we get some notoriety, and a lot of people start telling us, man, you're good, dude. You're the best, man. I loved your work. Da, 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 da. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. Man, Jason, I really love your work. You're amazing. Da, da, da. I shut that out, man. I mean, I appreciate it. It's nice, and they mean well, and I, I thank them. But that's poison. That's poison, man. I try to write my columns as if nobody's ever read me. I really do. Now, when you're writing as much stuff that I I mean, I actually have contractual obligation to write five pieces a week, which is a ridiculously epic workload. So they, they can't all be gems. But I try to keep the passion there, if nothing else, you know, because that's important. Because people can smell a phony, man. They really can. If you're not bringing it, they'll smell it. It doesn't matter if you're a radio host. It doesn't matter if you're a sports writer. It doesn't matter if you're doing a podcast. If you're not giving it your all, if you're phony, people will smell that on you in a second. Just like when you were a kid in school, right, and somebody wanted to fight, right, and one guy was scared. The other guy wasn't. He could smell it on the guy. You know what I mean? You can just tell when the other guy's not scared. It works in everything. In the animal kingdom, between people, you can tell when somebody's attracted to you. You can tell when somebody's pulsed by you. You can just tell these things. And it's important that you believe in yourself, man, and just keep plugging along, man, because that's persistence is what's going to get you. Talent is certainly going to help, but a lot of talented people have failed because they quit too soon. And a lot of people without much talent have made it because they refuse to give up. That's so of course right. it brings up that chicken and egg thing. Is, is persistence actually a talent? Blah, blah, blah. We don't need to go into those semantics. The, the, the persistence is so important because people always give up too soon. The first time they hear rejection, the first time they hear no, the first time they hear, you know what, maybe sports writing isn't for you, or maybe acting isn't for you, or maybe this isn't for you, that isn't for you, they give up. Right. And I didn't want to be that guy, John. I didn't want to be that guy who quit. I didn't want to be that guy who, when I was 65, said, you know what, I really should have given that sports writer thing a shot. Well, it's too late now, dude. You got to do it. You're doing perfectly fine so far, and hopefully the success continues as far as the writing is concerned. And I know one of the things that you've been writing about has obviously been the MLB postseason. I'm interested in it. I might be one of the few because I'm sure everybody was watching this football game tonight, but I'm still really loving this baseball thing, and I'm going to be sad when it's over. But since we're both Yankees fans, I just wanted to touch on them first before we get to the World Series and just get some of your thoughts about how the season ended for them. Because everybody knows they had that real hot start. They had that 9-10 game lead in the AL East. Everybody thought it was a given. They were going to get to the playoffs and win the division. And it was kind of like, all right, let's pump the brakes a little bit. They limped into the end of the season. They end up losing to the Astros. What were your thoughts on what the final outcome ended up being, and what do you see as the biggest things they might need to improve on for next season? Well, I think as a whole, they overachieved. I mean, I know they wound up with a lead in July, and the Yankees had never surrendered at least a four-game lead entering a particular date in July. I forgot what the exact date was, but they never surrendered a lead. This is the first time in team history. But let's be honest. A-Rod batted galaxies above what anybody expected from him. Mark Teixeira had a career year until, of course, he got injured at the end. A lot of Yankees outperformed. And I don't know, some people don't like Joe Girardi. I think he happens to be a pretty good manager. 
injuries and age finally hamstrung them. I mean, this is this is the problem as I see it, John. Their best or at least most high-profile players are all at least 35 years old. And we're talking about Sabathia. We're talking about A-Rod. We're talking about Carlos Beltran. Well, you did, you did name them the core four in one of your columns, right? But there was an adjective right. that went with that. <laughs> not a good one either. Exactly. Exactly. And the problem is, and I have nothing against people who are 35 years old, is they break down. Right. And the Yankees, now, of course, especially with guys like Bird, they got younger, and they, some of them have a very bright future. But, you know, McCann, everybody talks about what a wonderful player McCann is. And I, and I like Brian McCann, but he's still a 240 hitter. Right. So the Yankees signed Jacoby Ellsbury, and already they regret. They gave this guy $153 million, and he's already fizzling out. They weren't even sure where to bat him during the postseason if they had made a postseason, which they didn't. The Yankees have to stop. They have to get out of the business of giving a lot of money to people who are at least 30 years old. I think they have an exciting future with some of their pitching prospects. Mm-hmm. I mean, if they can stay healthy, and, and you've got the Uvaldis and the Novas and the Severinos, they've got a, a promising pitching staff. And a Warren, they've got a fine bullpen. I thought they would really miss Dave Robertson, but they didn't. I thought they really missed Mariano Rivera. They didn't. So the Yankees wound up, aside from the world, maybe having the best bullpen in baseball. Right. I think they overachieved for much of the season. I think they wound up at the median where they should have, which is high 80s in terms of victory total. Mm-hmm. It would have been nice if they could have beaten the Astros, but Dallas Keuchel, the Yankees, as we know, were, were allergic to left-handed pitching, and they were just too left-handed dependent to beat Keuchel, even on three days rest. But I, I think the Yankees need to get exponentially younger, They'll always be able to spend the money. Money is almost abstract to them because they have so much of it. But they need to shore up second base. They need to figure out what they're going to do at third base. I think they're going to go with Bird at first base, but how can they with Teixeira coming back? So they got to figure out what to do with Bird. They can't DH him because they still have A-Rod next year. The Yankees can win high 80s, maybe even 90 games next year, but they have to get younger. And they have to spell Teixeira, and they, they have to keep A-Rod at DH, which is going to be hard to spell Teixeira and some of the older players. They need Gardner to, to, to pick it up. He kind of fizzled toward the end of the year. They need Jacoby Ellsbury to pretend he's an all-star again. The problem is they have all these guys over 30 with these huge contracts. And the Steinbrenners, have, at least the children, have shown a, a reluctance to spend the kind of money their father spent. And, and that's one of the things we adored about George Steinbrenner. Is no player was too expensive for him. The Yankees are under a new business model now. They, they are cognizant of the luxury tax. They don't want to spend Dodger-type money anymore, despite the Yes Network and what they charge for, for tickets and the $2,000 seats behind home plate. The Yankees don't do business like that anymore, even though they can. I don't think that they're going to do that as much anymore. I don't think the future is dim for the Yankees. I, it's not as bright as it was, obviously, 15 years ago when they had such a nice core of young players. The Yankees are always going to be competitive because they can spend their way into contention. But you cannot buy championships, as evidenced by their one over the last 15 years. Yeah, you can't do it anymore. You can't. There's not going to be a 2009 when they got A.J. Burnett. Right, that's when they did it. That's when they did it. Well, there's not going to be that holy trinity of players like that anymore because of all these local cable deals that are sprouting up for all these teams. Almost every team now has a sports network. Right. So Mike Trout, Mike Trout's not going to be available to the Yankees again. Bryce Harper's not going to be available. The Yankees are going to have to, the, the Yankees are going to have to do that on their own. They're going to have to build their own players. They're going to have to do it through the farm system, which is what worked in the first place. Right. Unfortunately, we thought there was going to be 
a renaissance when you had Phil Hughes and Jabba Chamberlain. Unfortunately, they fizzled out, and it didn't work like we thought. But we had another one in Robinson Cano. Unfortunately, they let him go. But here's the problem, John. When was the last time there was a Yankee star who came up as a Yankee? Robinson Cano is the last one. That's been now, the last one. Now, maybe Brennan is the next guy. But that was the last one. That was, what, 11 years ago? Right. You need, no matter how much money you have, you have to develop your own players. Look at the Cardinals. Look at the Cubs. Look at the Pirates. Look at all the teams of the Royals. Look at all the teams that are succeeding. They're all developing from a farm system. The Mets, for as chastised as Omar Minaya was, he did get Daniel Murphy. He did get Matt Harvey. He did get Jacob DeGrom. These guys, you need to get them young and you need to develop them in your own system. I'm not saying you ever have a Mariano and a Bernie Williams and a Jeter. Sada. I don't know that that kind of confluence of talent will ever happen again. But I don't think you could sort of characterize the Yankee season as overly disappointing because I don't think anybody had the Yankees going to the World Series. The fact they fizzled at the end of the year was just a product of age. Right. And then you have the Sabathia thing, which really hit him for a loop. And I'm not knocking Sabathia. I ardently defended Sabathia. I, you know, I was like, oh, how dare he do this on the eve of the playoffs? Hey, the man needed help. For all we know, he, he could have been dying. Right, exactly. So just leave him alone. He's not the reason they failed. And Sabathia was actually pitching well toward the end of the year. So he, he was. I don't know what that yeah. magic knee brace he was wearing, but whatever he put under those uniform pants, he was pitching very well when he had that on because I was actually thinking that, you know, if they get into a wild card game or a must-win game, I wouldn't necessarily hate if he was on the mound. I agree, especially when you consider his savvy, his experience, his wisdom. I right. think that he might gets have been amped up for shot. those games. I mean, he sweats a lot, but he gets amped up for those games. And here's the problem with Tanaka. Tanaka is coming off. He didn't get the Tommy John surgery, which everybody, I think, in retrospect, wished he had. But he wanted to do it his own way. He met the thing he on him. But the problem is he's become sort of a Matt Harvey-type pitcher. Right. He can only go six innings. And you're not paying him. I forgot his contract, but it was, it was well over $100 million. You're not paying him that kind of money for six innings. Right. Okay? You're paying Tanaka for eight innings. Okay? You want to get to the closer. That's it. Tanaka, closer. And unfortunately, the Yankees didn't have that. And they, they have to get some right-handed bats because you can't have Dallas Keiko come to town and it's automatically over. I mean, that just shouldn't happen. The Yankees need some more right-handed wood, which is, should be relatively easy to find on the open market. Not necessarily a Cespedes-type player, but somebody who can bat 280 with 25 home runs. Plenty of those guys available. The Yankees need to get some right-handed bats and they need to get younger. Unfortunately, they have to stick with Sabathia and Beltron and A-Rod until their contracts expire. There's not much you can do about that. Yeah, I think what's fascinating is if you look at the other teams now that are in the playoffs and the way baseball has been evolving, if you look at these squads, they're doing that. They're building their farm systems. They're getting stronger. They're calling these guys up at the right time, but then they're also signing those pieces that they need in the free agent market. And that's kind of what's been working now, and you're just – waiting those couple years where, as you mentioned, these contracts start wearing down, maybe these guys retire. Maybe if we wait, we can use that farm system that we currently have because my last report for Bleacher Report was regarding the farm system and the future looking pretty bright for the kind of players that they have and some of them that they even called up for this year. And that's what worked when the dynasty was built 15, 20 years ago. So it's kind of like, well, hopefully these contracts wear down because that seems to be what's working. If you look at all the teams in the playoffs now, 
That seems to be what they're doing. They have the young talent, but they also have the veterans that they signed through the trade market, and look what's happening. Right, and they need more guys like Patances. Look how good Patances turned into. Now, I forgot there was another, they were called the Killer Bees. There was another guy who came up with them through the farm system who didn't turn out to be nearly as good. The last name started with a B. I can't remember. But it was Patances and Ben Wells. That's it, Ben Wells. That's right. But Patances turned into an absolute stud. Patances could close if they didn't already have an amazing closer. Patances right. could do it. You know, Batances is what Mariano Rivera was in 1996, the bridge to wetland. I mean, that's how good Batances has become. The Yankees need more of that. And the, the, the inventions are so obvious, John. I mean, first of all, you develop them. They become a hometown product. They become comfortable. They become part of the family. Okay, that's number one. Number two, you can use them for years and years until they become arbitration eligible. And then once they become arbitration eligible... You wave a few extra million in front of their faces, you tear up the arbitration years, and you sign them on the cheap. So instead of getting a $100 million deal, they get a $50 million deal. But at least they get it three years before they're expected to get their big money. There's so many advantages to building through your own farm system. It's almost endless. It's exponential. I mean, buying championships just doesn't work. The Dodgers have assumed the Yankee role, right? The Dodgers have the Carl Crawfords and all these guys that know the Adrian Gonzalez's, the people whose contracts nobody wants. They make the playoffs every year, but you see time and again that it doesn't get you to the world championship. Like you said, every team that's now competing, you look at the playoff pool this year, all of them are young, all of them went through the draft, all of them can run, too. That's another thing. Aside from Brett Gardner, who was stealing bases for the Yankees? Yeah, and even he wasn't doing it. At exactly. some point, they just stopped running at all. I was like, geez, he's wearing that guard on his hand. Send him. And look, I realize there's not going to be the 1985 Cardinals ever again. Stealing bases is not what it used to be. But it still matters, man. Right. I mean, the guy scored that, that, that fly ball in the first inning of game one of the World Series. That guy went all the way around, you know? I mean, <laughs> Brian McCann wasn't going to have an inside-the-park home run on that ball. You know what I mean? Right. So speed does really matter. Just the threat of it. It changes the way the pitcher delivers to the play. It changes... How many times it looks over, it changes his thinking, it distracts him. All these things matter. Speed is so important. And it obviously has its benefits in the field, too. So the Yankees need to get younger. They need to get faster. It's like the, uh, the bionic man. We need to get faster, younger, stronger. And, and the, Yankees, I, the Yankees can't keep being 28 farm system. I mean, they're not anymore. They're getting a lot better and a lot younger. And I hope Cashman stays on that path. But that's got to be the mission, younger, faster, See, it's going to keep happening until they get exponentially younger. They're going to keep collapsing in September because you can't expect Carlos Beltran to play 150 games. You can't expect A-Rod, even as a DH, you can't expect him to hit 300 with 35 home runs. I mean, it's just not going to happen. And, and everybody, oh, God, I don't want to get in those, right? But, you know, <laughs> the sheriff always has an injury. I mean, I didn't even know what a sheath was until he had a torn sheath in his wrist. Yeah, but the problem was, was he didn't get his injury in April and May when he typically does. He waited until That's the correct. worst possible time. It was like, no, yeah, we did. would have taken this when you don't have your hot start in the beginning of the season and there's a wrist problem or a foot problem, whatever. It's done when the playoffs come. Horrible timing for that. And the way they went about it was horrendous because every day it was like, yeah, I think I'm all right. It feels better. And then after a couple of weeks, like, yeah, it's broken. Where are you going for your x-rays? How do you not realize there's this big of a problem where you can't play baseball this season? And then the most overlooked aspects of Teixeira is his defense. I mean, he might not be the gold glover he was five years ago, but he's still damn good. I mean, Teixeira is a complete ball player. They really missed him. 
Yeah, that was bad. And and as you mentioned, some of the guys just wore down. And even Batansis wore down because they were going to him so much to eke out those victories. And then Joe Girardi was saving him in games where maybe he should have played him, so they would lose those, and it was just a headache. But that's fine because if they had made the playoffs, we would have just had probably three more games of headache. We'll move on and uh, get over it, and we'll wait for next year. So aside from the World Series – what have been some of the biggest storylines that you might remember from this playoffs as a whole? Because there has been a couple good ones. We had the Jose Batista bat flip. We had Kershaw finally doing its thing a little bit. You had the Astros coming onto the scene, the Cubs coming onto the scene, what the Mets were able to do to them. What are some of the things that stick out to you aside from the World Series currently? I would say the revival of the wild card argument became a very hot topic towards the end of the year that a team like the Pirates that won 98 games could get eliminated in one game Again. by the Cubs. Again, right. for, for, this is like, what, three years now they've they've lost in that three years. And how, like 162 games, you win 98 games, and you were one you have to face Jake Arrieta? Right. It's just not fair. So I think, look, I get it, and I agree with it. In the beginning, the wild card was too easy. Okay, teams didn't even try to win the division anymore because they were going to get the same shot to win as the team that won the division. So I understand you want to make it harder on the wild card team to get to the World Series. I absolutely get that. But I think the best out of three would be appropriate because the Pittsburgh Pirates are a wonderful story. I mean, obviously Pittsburgh is not a small city, but still it's considered a relatively small market team, a team that hasn't been really significant since the Bobby Bonilla, Jim Leland, Barry Bonds days. They're having a survival. It's a wonderful story. And they and the Cubs, who both had wonderful seasons, have to have their seasons ended or decided on one game. I think they should restore to best out of three. I know this might sound radical. I would change it, the regular season, to 154 games. And that way we don't have World Series games in November. I was going to say, would you be up for either starting the season a little bit earlier if they wanted to keep 162 so things end in October? Or, as you mentioned, I was going to bring that up as well, shortening the season 154, 148, something around there to make things a little bit more compact because I'm sure the players wouldn't mind getting those couple days off. Absolutely. And and I think I'm in favor of showing you 254 games. There's certainly a precedent. I mean, baseball played almost a century with 154 games. They can certainly live with it now. But the owners are so greedy. I don't think the owners are so greedy. I don't think they would agree to cutting eight games off the schedule and lose the revenue. But play more doubleheaders then. Start the season a little earlier. I mean, November baseball should not exist. It's just it's not part of baseball. We equate baseball with warm weather. I mean, that's why we love it so much. Summertime, stick the up to the ball game. It's the, the verdant outfield, it's the sun splash stands, it's it's the smell of hot dogs and peanuts. I mean, it's a, it's a carnival almost experience. It's, right. It's wonderful. So anyway, that's one thing. Another thing is the amount of pitchers who can throw like at least 95 miles an hour now. With I ease. I love the fact, with ease, and I love it. If there's another narrative, it's these seasons are, these last two or three seasons are a referendum on what steroids did to the sport because now that players are actually clean, Look how the home run totals have dipped. It's right? amazing, isn't it? In 2001, everybody hit at least 50 home runs. Now nobody hit 50 home Where runs. is Brady Anderson now is the question. Where Brady is Anderson. where is Brett Boone? Where are those power hitters that we're missing? No, actually, and Brady Anderson's the perfect example because he was the progenitor of this. He hit 15 home runs the year before that, then he hit 50. 
And he said it's because he was rollerblading and strengthening his legs. He uh, went out for dinner what... with Raphael, and he was like, listen, man, I've been taking these. I know I'm a really good hitter, but maybe you should try it because things are hey, going to be Those are vitamin B shots. I don't know what you're talking about. Those are vitamin B shots. <laughs> you're right. Well, he looked everybody from, in the eye and said that, so who am I to say? From Miguel Tejada, right. And he blamed Miguel Tejada for it. That's the best part is when he blamed Miguel Tejada for it. Right, right. What a vitamin B shot. Looking back at that 20, 30 years down the road, that that's going to be a time where people are going to be like, they went in front of the government to ask them questions and to look them in the eye and said, we did not cheat. What happened to baseball at that point? Pitching is so dominant now. They're talking about lowering the mound. I mean, that's how bad steroids, that's how synthesized, that's how sterilized the record books became. That's how rampant steroid use was and what damage it did to the game. I mean, just think about it. Nobody hits 50 home runs anymore. We used to get carpal tunnel running down all the home runs people were hitting. You know, like you said, the, the Brett Boons and, and, you know, Sammy Sosa was an average hitter when he was in the American League. What happened to him? I mean, David Ortiz, look at his stats. Look at David Ortiz's stats when he was in Minnesota. You didn't see big poppy numbers. No, I don't think now, people for- like to remember those days where uh, Sammy Sosa was in the American League and Big Poppy was wearing those twin scholars. They just want to remember those home run years. Exactly. And there's another thing, too, which is vastly overlooked. The, the steroid thing is kind of a Captain Obvious narrative. But also the use of amphetamines has vastly affected the game. Now you notice that older players don't play doubleheaders. They don't play in September anymore. used to be when you were 36 years old, you could play six months because you could take those greenies. Now they're not all greenies. You notice the old-timers aren't playing nearly as much as they used to. And that's entirely because of amphetamines. Entirely because of that. It used to be that the old-timers, you're 35, 36 years old, you wonder, wow, how can these guys keep playing? How are they playing double-headers? How are they playing deep into September? Well, because mother's little helper. They used to dig into that little jar, pop a couple of those greenies, and they could play as long as you want. Right, now we know. Not anymore. Now we know. You know, baseball, you know, people think just because you stand on the outfield and you choose sunflower seeds, that doesn't take a toll. Baseball is a grueling sport between the travel, the heat, 162 games. I mean, that's a long-ass season. Man. Yeah, you know, you know, it, one it, of your old favorite radio hosts, Mr. Chris Mad Dog Russo, always yeah. brings up the fact that those Sunday night games, those teams have to then travel to play Monday night, maybe in the West Coast, wherever they have to go. He's like, how are you expecting teams to play Sunday night get home at whatever time and then play a baseball game the next day? What are they doing to these people? Well, I once saw a documentary. I don't know if it was ESPN or who it was. They followed the Houston Astros just for one week. The amount of traveling they did, they finished the game at around midnight. Then they had to board a plane at 2 a.m., fly across country, and then they had like a 1 p.m. game. I'm like, hey, you can't do this to people. No, it's, it's These are professional athletes. Yeah, to travel alone is absurd. And you know, people think, well, you're just sitting on a plane. Traveling takes a toll on people. Right. It does. I don't, I'm not a physicist. I'm not a chemist. I'm not a biologist. I don't know what it does. But flying around the country takes a toll. Hey, when I have to drive to... How many times have you taken a trip and said, man, I'm tired? Yeah, and I was just going to say... Are you tired? When I drive into the city, I'm tired. That's only two hours away. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Speaking of Mad exactly. Dog, real quick, supposedly ESPN sure. is in the works of doing a 30 for 30 about... Yeah, 30 for 30, I'm liking the Mad Dog. I'm so excited. I'm sure you're excited. I am so geeked up for that. I really am, because Mike... Sam- I didn't mention this. One of my first profiles as a paid sports writer was on Mike Francesa. And he was actually incredibly nice to me. I, I was going to say, hopefully he was people. more kind than just cutting you off mid-question. No, he, no, believe it or not, he was incredibly kind to me. He spent 90 minutes on the phone, and we had a awesome. wonderful time. 
we didn't keep in touch after that. I, I wrote him a letter and I didn't hear back from him, but I wound up working for WFA. And then he sort of had a happy ending. But uh, no, I mean, let's, let's be honest. I mean, I understand people have their problems with Francesca for whatever reason. He is the godfather of the genre. Right. They he changed is. the I mean, game. They really did. They started the game. They didn't just change it. They started You're it. right. You're right. They and did. just to hear him tell the story, he was listening to an AM radio station on his way into the city. To, he was working for CBS at the time covering college football. And he heard a radio host and he said, wait a second, I can do this. And then he started, he actually started with WFA before he teamed up with Chris Russo. He was doing a Sunday program called NFL Today. He was do, he's been doing it for 29 years. Mm-hmm. He does it every Sunday at 9 a.m. And then he started getting the afternoon drive, and then they teamed up with Chris Russo, and the rest is history. And let's be honest, Mike and the Mad Dogs, that's the Mick Jagger and Keith Richards of sports talk radio. It right. really is. I mean, those, those are the dudes, man. Well, I was, hoping, I was hoping that you had made a relationship with Mike just so maybe you could put in a good word so I can be his next new co-host because I think he's looking. Uh, I, you know what? If I could, <laughs> I would, man. I thought it was fascinating, though. I don't know if you noticed. Did you see? Did you hear his interview with Bill Simmons when, when Mike and Mad Dog split up? His first call was to Bill Simmons. I did, and that's amazing. And you know what's even greater is now that Bill Simmons has cut ties with ESPN, his Twitter and his podcast have just been even more amazing than they were before because now... Now, yeah, he, does, he doesn't have any chain link fence around what he's allowed to say. It's fantastic. I love what he's able to do and what he does, and he's going to have a lot of fun with HBO, I bet. Any speculation? I've heard several names, but I'd love to know. Mike Francesca made two phone calls. One was to Bill Simmons. I'd love to know who the other one was. My guess is it was Max Kellerman, but I have no idea. I that could be, because he, he was still... Not incredibly popular, but he was rising very quickly, and I wouldn't be surprised if he did that, because the same with Bill Simmons. They were rising slowly, and he would have caught them at a great time. I think it was Kellerman. I do. I really do. And Kellerman would have been a great choice. I mean, he's a native New Yorker. He grew up in Greenwich Village. He went to Columbia. He's great. I mean, and he's a, and I love him for his boxing coverage. I was just going to say, you're probably a huge fan because he's, he's one of the best oh, at boxing. He's, a, so boxing, how could you he's know? a boxing savant. Let me tell you something. A lot of people, you have to actually be a native New Yorker to know this. This was the 1980s, right? Um, I'm just guessing 1985. Okay, I'm just throwing that out there. I was 16 years old, right? I turn on, this is the beginning of cable. You, I'm sure you might remember the old cable boxes with the knobs on them, you know, before we had remotes and 6,000 channels oh, and yes. TV. Oh, yes. Grandma All and we had was the cable box. Yep. Exactly. So I'm watching uh, a public access channel, and I see this kid, 12 years old, talking about boxing. And he's talking about Willie Pep and Jack Johnson and Jack Dempsey and Sonny Liston and Henry Armstrong and Carlos Monzon. And I call my father over, and I swear to God, I'm like, Dad, who the hell is this kid? And the show was called Max Unboxing. Wow. This kid was 12 years old, and he had an encyclopedic. He had, like, a John Nash, beautiful mind-type understanding of the sport at 12. You know, it's amazing and, to see these guys outside mm-hmm. of the half-hour or hour show they do, just like Michael Smith was talking with Trey Wingo before he did one of his his and her shows, and he asked Trey Wingo, who played in every Super Bowl? Where was the Super Bowl at? And I think you might have asked him who was the MVP, but it was at least the first two, and he rattled them off in five minutes. Unbelievable. Trey Wingo, that's why he is where he is today. 
That's incredible. Now, I can tell you who played in every Super Bowl, but I cannot tell you where it was played. I, I can tell you tell who's you. on the 1996 team, but I get screwed up right around like those two bench players, like the Andy Phillipses. Those two or three guys screw me because they didn't really play. Who was that our year. second baseman who hit 340 that year? Was it Mariano Duncan? Damn, good job, bro. That always stumps people. That's good. You have, Nine out of ten people don't get that. We played really. today, we win today. That's it. Yep. I have that 1996 VHS tape, and I must have watched that 350,000 times. As many times as you read that one Sports Illustrated article, I've probably watched that tape. So I actually should probably we get can that out. Never, we can never recapture the magic. It's hard to explain to people who aren't Yankee fans or people who didn't experience it how magical that 96 team was. I mean, was the, 98 team, the 98 team was special, too, and I enjoyed the crap out of that ride. But that 96 team came out of nowhere, and that team was not supposed to beat the Braves. And I don't know if people remember, the Braves pumped us those first two games. Oh, I yeah. they beat us like 13 nothing and 13 nothing in those first two games. Yeah, it Something was bad. Was like, it was real bad. pumped us. And then we had to go to Atlanta for the next few games. And Joe Torrey said before the series, he told George Steinbrenner, we're going to lose the first two with the next four. Now, I don't know if he was just bullshitting or being cute, but Joe Torrey actually said that. Yep. And then when Pettit threw that shot up in Atlanta, but, oh, God, and then the later it's Homer off Wallace, and then the loudest, and this is true, Francesca said this on the air, but he's actually right. Sometimes Francesca exaggerates a little bit, in case you didn't know. <laughs> the loudest he's ever seen Yankee Stadium, and, and Francesca goes back to the Mickey Mantle days. I don't go back that far. I go as far back as Reggie. He said, game six, when Joe Girardi hit that triple off Maddox, that was the loudest Yankee Stadium it's ever been. Wow. And he's right. I, I was there. First of all, the old Yankee Stadium was great. The idea that they tore it down is ridiculous. I miss it myself. There was nothing wrong with that place. They had four million. They were getting four million fans a year. There was no reason to tear that place down. I I digress. I digress. That's Yankee Stadium we're talking to. That's not Shea Stadium. That's Yankee Stadium. And they just tore it down. They they made it like three Little League fields or whatever they're doing, parking. What are you doing, man? I mean, the new one is beautiful, yes, but they didn't need it. And now you can't even fill the seats. Nobody's there anymore. Right, exactly. We we could have another show just talking about the stadium. Well, and I'm ashamed because I've been to City Field, and that's a beautiful ballpark. City Field is so much more cool. Yeah, it is nice. You know what I mean? It's got that nice 50s retro field. Anyway. I was at that 96 game, and I swear to God, the stadium shook as if there was a Category 8. I mean, I, I was actually worried that the stadium was going to collapse. Wow. That's how much noise. Because you can never repeat that. The Yankees, you know, everybody thinks the Yankees have won every year. I went through 18 years of no World Series, okay? My hit puberty, no World Series. 18 years from age 8 to age 26. I didn't get a World Series, Okay. I had to suffer through the Jack Clarks and the Mike Pally Rulos and the Bobby Meachams and the Jesse Barfields and the Jack Clarks and the Ron Hasseys and the Butch Weinigers, Steve Trout, Ed Whitson. Trust me, the 80s were not fun as the Yankees fan. So that 96 team was beautiful. It was just gorgeous. And to stick it to the Braves like that, oh, that was just wonderful. Especially after 95, the way that ended right. with Jack McDowell and Ken Griffey and Oh, that was painful. No, the I only sad part is Don Mattingly didn't get his ring. If anybody deserved a ring, it was Don Mattingly. That's what I he hear. Now, I, I don't want to burst your bubble, but I turned five in 1996. 
uh, well, I was wow. five at the time. I feel ancient. I was five at the time, and the family birthday party we held for me was actually the night of Game Six. So I remember watching that, jumping in my father's arms. My only regret for that year is that I was only five, going on six, and I couldn't really right. be as excited or experience it as much as I would have been if I was older. But my Yankee years as a fan have been a lot nicer, I guess you would say, than most. We've had some rough patches, but, I mean, you can't complain. For what other franchises have gone through, like the two franchises that are now in the World Series from 1985, 1986, the poor Mets, 2000, what, a, what another great series that was. But mm-hmm. now they both have an opportunity to bring that trophy home. Are you surprised at how the series has gone so far or not so Very. much? Very, very surprised. I thought the pitching would carry through because when they beat the Dodgers, it was sort of a house money endeavor, and the Dodgers you kind of felt like were imploding anyway. There was some turmoil with Mattingly, right. and you kind of felt like that, that was a team that was struggling internally. Then when the Cubs came, we just figured, well, this is house money. We're just happy to be here. Then they beat the Cubs, and it's like, wow, okay, well, this is no longer house money. Now that we're here, let's take this thing through. And they didn't just beat the Cubs. They smoked the Cubs. Oh, they demolished they the Cubs. They snuffed them out. They were never trailing for one inning in that series. I mean, that's frightening. And the Cubs, in my opinion, were the best team in baseball at that point. Right. And they just destroyed them. So I figured, okay, Kansas City plays in in a weaker league against weaker competition. They only have 12 players left over from the team the year before that went to the World Series. So this idea that everyone has World Series experience is not true. And like Johnny Cueto, I figured the, the, just the, by dint of their pitching and some timely hitting, the, the Mets would prevail. And it looked like that's exactly what was going to happen in game one. Then you had that home run off Familia, and that changed everything. That might have been the, the hit that wins the World Series for the world, if you ask me. And the Royals uh, you know, were on the ropes several times yeah. before the World Series. They were down 6-2 yep. to two against the Astros. Six to six to the Astros. They shouldn't yep. be here. See, I, right. I was getting the feeling that they switched that and they were playing with house money this year in this World Series, even though they're back. It just seemed right. like coming into the series, the Mets pitching. Oh, the Mets pitching. We, the Royals probably felt like nobody expects us to beat these guys. Let's just go out and be loose. And you kind of just felt like those two pitchers are going to go out there and pitch their heart out and you're going to get a Cueto that you don't want to see. And it's going to help him because he's going to put that at the top of his contract resume when that comes around. Like, hey, guys, remember that? And Amen. now it's to the point where, all right, it seems like I think the Mets are going to win the next two. I think Syndergaard is going to be okay. They're going to go home. The crowds are going to be crazy. Great. The Royals might not necessarily play as hard. They might not kill themselves. It's like, okay, we already won two, whatever. And then I think Matz is going to have one of those games where he just dominates. And you're like, wow, who would expect that? The guy that's the fourth guy in the rung was able to pitch so well and go seven, eight innings. I was just incredibly surprised at three swings and misses in the entire game. My goodness, this Royals team, they just know how to play in the postseason. It's its kind of mind-boggling. Well, and he had two strikes 24 separate times and couldn't get a swing and a miss. Unbelievable. And you've That's got the guy on the mound that does, this is what he does. And you got Familia on the mound with a, a lead. This is what he does. And they just haven't been able to do that. And we're going to see how it plays out, but it's not looking good. But as I've been saying, it's been done before. The Yankees... 1996, they did it. That's the last team that was able to make that comeback. And the last team that actually was up 2-0, winning the two games at home and losing the series, was again the Yankees. Reggie Jackson, those guys. 
So 1981. You know, I actually remember that series, John. It was special not only because they won the first two games, but Greg Nettles put on a show at their base that nobody had seen outside of Brooks Robinson. He made some plays that were just mind-boggling. Everybody figured because it was the Dodgers and the Yankees owned the Dodgers. They'd already beaten them in 77 and 78. Right. Why not do it again? And it didn't happen. How do you think the rest of the series plays out? Who do you have winning it this year? I mean, look, if we're going to be entirely objective, we have to lead towards the Royals. But the idea that the series is over is just nonsense. And again, I'll lean on something that I heard Urban Meyer say, and Urban Meyer knows something about winning. They talk about Ohio State, best team in the country, this, best team in the country, that. He tells his team, look, don't listen to any of that noise. And I think this translates into any sport. You don't have to be the best team in the country. All you have to do is be the best team in that arena on that particular day. And that's all the Mets have to worry about. All they have to do is win tomorrow. Forget 2 nothing. Forget the ramifications. Forget the odds. Forget the permutations. Forget all that. Just win tomorrow night. If they win, it's only 2-1, to one, and they've got Steven Matz on the mound for game four, and then anything can happen. Again, I know it's a cliche, but they say a series doesn't start until a road team wins. Well, a road team hasn't won yet, so let's just wait till that happens before we start the eulogies. Well, Jason, yeah. I have to say thanks a ton for everything you've been able to provide, not only on what you're able to do with writing, but the insight on baseball. I've learned a lot, and I hope my listeners do as well. And I've enjoyed reading your columns. I'm definitely going to put this on my website to let people know where they can find your work. And hopefully this series continues. You get a little bit more work in, and then you could focus on football, boxing, basketball, everything else that you're up to. Never a dull moment as a sports writer, right? Oh, absolutely. And if you are an NFL junkie, I can certainly talk for an hour and a half on the NFL, too. So well, I'll have, to ha- I'll have to have you back then. I appreciate your time. Thanks a lot, Jason. And I to, I'll just say it ahead of time. I uh, love the Yankees, but I'm in love with the Pittsburgh Steelers. I bleed black and gold. Just want to make that clear. I'm a total Pittsburgh homer. All right, Jason. Well, thanks again for your time. I appreciate it. Good luck doing these games the next couple of days. I hope they're as exciting as the first two, and hopefully they go the Mets way to make your followers a little bit happy and get your streak back up to a decent number after that first loss the other day. Indeed, man. Anytime, brother. I definitely enjoyed this. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can follow Jason on Twitter. He is at Jason Keidel. That's J-A-S-O-N-K-E-I-D-E-L. You can also follow me on Twitter at London Bridge. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can catch more episodes on The Bridge on my website at www.londonbridge.com. Again, that's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Thanks to Jason for coming onto the show, and hopefully he can come back and speak some NFL and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Sports.